Hey friends, I'm Christine Chapel, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, we chat with Darby Strickland about her book, Is It Abuse? A Biblical Guide to Identifying Domestic Abuse and Helping Victims. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guest. Darby Strickland counsels and teaches at CCEF. She is a contributor to Becoming a Church That Cares Well for the Abused and author of two booklets, Domestic Abuse, Recognize, Respond, Rescue, and Domestic Abuse, Help for the Sufferer. Hey there, Darby. Thanks so much for joining us for the show today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be with you. Before we get started in our conversation, would you take a few minutes to share why you wanted to write a resource on this topic? Sure. I think it's because um, early on when I was counseling um, as a younger counselor, God just kept bringing me women who were oppressed and I really wanted to involve the church in their care because their situations were complex. Um, It often involved their children. Oppression is confusing and disorienting. And when you're abused by your spouse, there's just a lot of practical implications in your daily life. And so I'd go to their churches, their elders, pastors, and deacons, and, you know, try to coordinate care, try to get support for them in their church. And the church was really struggled to see it. It really struggled to understand abuse. I mean, I wouldn't, it's not just the leaders. Oftentimes it would be their female friends that would just not say the right thing or give them advice that was hurtful or would put them in danger. And so I was just really committed to educating the church. So oftentimes I'd approach a church and I'd recognize I'd have to have like five or 10 conversations before the light bulb would go off and they'd get it. Um, And often they'd be deeply grieved for what they had missed. Many times just sitting with pastors with tears in their eyes once they realized the brutality um, that this woman had faced for so long. And so I just realized I, I can't keep going to churches one at a time, having five to 20 conversations, but I really wanted to love the church well and to help them just nuance something that's really difficult. The Bible just has so much wisdom in it. And I really believe that if the people of God understood the extent of the evil that their members were facing, they would want to speak into it. They would want to provide comfort and care. The problem is most people just cannot imagine the amount of evil that goes on hidden in homes. Well, at the very start of the book, you write, quote, abuse is easy to miss, but it is even easier to minimize. Can you explain why both of these statements are true? Sure. One is often the tactics that an oppressor uses to control his victim um, are often hidden from her. Victims themselves don't see it. You know, they're told you deserve to be treated this way. You know, if you didn't behave this poorly, um, if you submitted better, I wouldn't have to be punishing and cruel to you. So oppressors are master blame shifters. So in part, their victims don't understand that they're victims of abuse. Often they'll come to me for anxiety or depression. So they're not coming to me saying, Darby, my husband's treating me cruelly. They're not defining their problem um, because they're confused and disoriented. And oppressors use that confusion to control their victim. And so that's one way um, that it is hidden. Another way that it's hidden is just oppressors are masterful in public. They have a completely different faith at home than they do in church. 
And so oftentimes we really struggle to believe, I can't believe so-and-so is oppressive. I know him. He's such a charismatic and fun guy. Um, and there's just a public image that is, makes it difficult and keeps it hidden. The other reality is it's really easy for us as people on the outside to dismiss because, again, victims are kind of confused as to what's going on. Sometimes they think something's not right. I don't know quite what it is. And they're trying to figure out who's safe to talk to. And time and time again, I see women try to offer these little trial balloons out to their friends. Like they ask a question. Sometimes it's somewhat veiled. You know, does your husband get angry when dinner's not on time? Or what do you guys do when um, your children are disrespectful? And they just put out one little question, if you will. And we usually just speak into that one thing and dismiss it as a one-off. You know, it was right for your husband. Feel disrespected when your child said that. And so his reaction, it makes sense. And instead of saying, well, how often does it happen? Or what were the exact words that were said? We just take the little bit of information they give us. And so it's easy just to normalize that and think, well, that maps onto my marriage. There's times that I'm frustrated or I'm quiet or more withdrawn. Again, we just can't imagine the extent that people are facing with the brutality and the hundreds of acts of domination that they're facing daily in their homes. So with one question, we just we just normalize it and kind of toss it to the side. And that's just a regular marriage problem um, without trying to find out how often, how intense, um, and how much more is going on. So Darby, do you think when you say it's easier to minimize, is that a, a true statement when abuse is disclosed? Absolutely. And it's very tragic. Sometimes an oppressed woman will come forward and make a very clear complaint in her church in particular. I have seen it with extreme violence where she will have said, you know, my husband strangled me. And the church interacts with the oppressor and they say, well, he's really remorseful. He's tearful. He's very sorry. Um, and they just dismiss the event, and they don't follow up or understand the seriousness of what's occurred. That can happen with, you know, there's one fight that's reported, and instead of recognizing it as an act of abuse, they put it into the category of a fight. And, you know, they misalign blame, all sorts of reasons. They don't recognize the patterns of constant punishment that someone's facing. And they, they look at someone who's apologized or... They look at a particular incidence of abuse without trying to understand the pattern of domination that's happening throughout the whole relationship. Well, Darby, I know we've talked about this on this podcast before, but I wonder, you know, you do address this in the book. And I think just in case there are listeners who are hearing about this topic for the first time, can you help us to understand you know, you've used the term oppression. Why is it appropriate to view and label domestic abuse as oppression? Domestic abuse is when one spouse pursues their own interests by seeking control and domination um, over the other spouse with patterns that are coercive, controlling, and punishing. And you can just see, and even in that definition, how it involves domination of another person. And so I liken it to the bad kings of the Old Testament, right? They did what was right in their own eyes for their own gain, um, and they oppressed people so that their, their kingdoms and interests would flourish. And oppressors are a lot like bad kings who want to build a system of worship around themselves instead of around the Lord. 
And our, our God is just not a God who dominates his people. He seeks to protect us and care for the vulnerable. In fact, Jesus, right, he, he said he's come to work for justice and he's a protector and our deliverer in Luke 4. And I think it's just helpful to recognize the domination that is involved. I think the word oppression just captures that really well. You just spoke about how it's easier to minimize abuse, but what about the other end of the spectrum where the label of abuse is used inappropriately? Can you talk about the damage that can result from a situation being mislabeled as abusive? Sure. There's several different ways when we misuse the label. Um, One is if we are going to call things that are abusive that aren't, in fact, that don't meet the threshold of a pattern of punishing behavior, we're going to harm future victims that come forward. It's just going to be harder for them to be believed for people to understand what we mean um, by oppressive behavior. So we want to be detailed and specific. In fact, oftentimes the label of abuse or oppression isn't helpful. It's more helpful to say he was brutal, he was terrorizing, his words were cruel, his fists were clenched. We want to be as detailed and precise in our words um, and in labeling the actions of what an oppressor might do. I think that's more helpful than actually using the label this is or isn't oppressive right off the bat. We want to be really detailed. Another way that it can be mislabeled is that many oppressors, when they are confronted, they start reading about abuse and they claim to be the oppressed one in the relationship. And so we have to go really slow and verify what we're hearing. You know, is a person who's claiming abuse, are they frightened? Do they feel guilty? Do they feel overly responsible? Or are they just using that label because they were criticized. And so we want to be really careful. I often say that most victims don't come in and say, I'm abused. But if if someone comes in and alleges abuse and it's not, I would say, like, so if, if I were to approach a husband and say, you know, your wife's accused you of being oppressive, a husband who is not oppressive will be broken. Hmm. He will be hurt, yes, but he will also be upset. I can't believe my wife would feel this way. I care about her, what she's saying. There will be a tenderness and a concern. And it's really easy to get in there and discern this is a man whose heart is hurting when he hears such a thing versus someone who is angry that such a label would be used. And so even when we make a mistake is what I want to see, say, um, and, and maybe label someone as an oppressor when they're not. How they respond to us will help us determine their heart. Are, are they open to rebuke or correction? Are they defensive and self-serving and using anger in the process? So even when we get it it wrong, um, people's responses help us to tweak and become more accurate in our assessments. I'd like to talk now about the various kinds of abuse you reference in the book and ask you to help our listeners with some high-level overviews about how they can become more aware or observant about possible instances of oppression that may be occurring in their local church community. So let's take physical abuse, for example. You write that not all instances of physical abuse are obvious to outsiders. So how can we become more attuned to cases where physical abuse is taking place, especially if victims are often hesitant to seek our help? Yeah, that's a great question. Most of the Christian women I work with, right, their bruises are in the center of their back or on their calves. They're in hidden places, which, again, just stresses that an oppressor is in control when he's causing the harm because he knows 
how to create injuries that no one else will see. And oftentimes they'll do things that are just below the line. Perhaps, you know, they won't hit their spouse or punch her, but they'll threaten to do so. I've had many people who will they'll tuck a gun in their belt buckle and they'll walk really close to their spouse, but no threats made. And so it's really, again, difficult for victims to see it, but it's even harder for us to recognize that as a threat if we don't understand the overall context of the relationship. So I, I don't know, I'm trying to think of like, how would you detect, how would you see what was not seen in a church situation? When you see a woman at church who's just quieter, a little withdrawn, and her husband always seems to be staying by her side, or he always makes an appearance on the scene. And um, when he shows up, she kind of um, is different or closed, stops speaking. Um, is there any, does she display any subtle signs of anxiety or fear? Is she deferring to him and her posture and gestures, waiting for him to speak first? That could mean many different things, right? I mean, just because we think there's a red flag, it doesn't mean that physical abuse is happening in the home by any means. You can have a woman who is just more timid. Mm-hmm. or struggles with anxiety socially, but it's it's really very subtle things that you can pick up on and just and just become curious about. It might surprise our listeners to hear that sexual abuse can occur in marriage, but the heartbreaking reality is that it can and it does, and you share some stories about that in the book. If we're counseling a woman who we suspect is a victim, how can we go about qualifying whether or not what she is experiencing falls under the category of sexual abuse? Absolutely, right? Because sex is something that we're so uncomfortable talking about, mm-hmm. or most of us, I know I am, and even as I counsel many women, it's still something that's not comfortable to approach. Right. Um, and it's hard for us to always understand differences Sometimes something is presented to us as a difference in desire or appetite or frequency, and we just make assumptions. And so one of the things we just have to do to find out, well, is this a normal, healthy couple that's just negotiating a different level of desire, or is there coercion happening? What are the things that are happening inside someone's bedroom? And they're just uncomfortable um, and delicate questions. But I really do believe we have to ask for more info That's one of the things I really try to do in the book was give helpers a variety of questions, gentle questions. I don't believe that they're intrusive, just that open up for them, give them the ability to tell us more. So many of my women who have been sexually abused by their husbands will say to me, you know, I went to my Bible teacher 10 years ago and I asked her, is it normal for my husband to want this amount of sex? She's, you know, the Bible leader would laugh it off and say, you know, honey, if you don't do Service your husband, somebody else will. And they don't think to ask how many times a week or day, what's it like, is it painful? So they just, again, make people speak into the worlds that they know. So one of the things I really wanted to accomplish in the book is to give people questions just to help victims by drawing out their stories just a little bit more. You know, why are you asking? Why is that a concern for you? What's happening? How often? Again, just giving people the language and the comfortability to to speak more, usually when we want to know less, right? Yeah, and that's what I really appreciated about this book was it was just so clear. I mean, I I can't 
I don't know how long it took you to write it, but it just seemed like so much attention and care and love went into producing it. And especially just a mindfulness of what it looks like to have these kinds of conversations in a counseling session, because you're right, to bring up such intimate details is uncomfortable. Yeah, thank you. I think that was one of the visions behind the book was to make it very practical Mm -hmm. and helpful. It has a workbook aspect to it. So even if you if you're new to it, you could actually pull out an inventory with someone you're working with and just go directly through the questions. Or maybe if you have more experience, you can bank a few questions to pull out. And it's just from years of listening to women and their stories and trying to find commonalities among them, just have been really privileged with people sharing um, their suffering and knowing how valuable it was to them to connect their suffering with specifics. Um, to the heart of the Lord. And the only way to do that is to really know a person. And so I really wanted to provide tools to help counselors and friends really know somebody. Well, Darby, do you have any insight as to how abuse tends to start? I mean, for the most part, do you think or have you observed that it begins as an emotional abuse and then works its way into more violent or physical forms? Sometimes that is true, right? Because we know what we know about sin is sin always causes our hearts to grow hard. And sin, unless it's um, repented of, it always increases in, in type, kind, and frequency. But it can be a different trajectory for each victim. For instance, I have many victims that were the dating period, engagement period. There was not a hint of anything that was overtly abusive. Um, maybe looking back, we can see in some ways their expressions of passion were controlling, but you wouldn't have labeled it as such unless you had a very keen eye at the time. But on the honeymoon, there was a rape right out the gate, and that really changes the trajectory of the marriage, and, and the wife learns to comply or she will face brutality. I have other women who are engaged, married for a few years, everything's going swimmingly. She's keeping up with her husband's demands because like, entitlement is what fuels abuse. And so when you're young and you're married without kids, you can do all sorts of things, um, meet all sorts of your husband's rules and preferences for dinner and how to keep house. And often it's when that first baby is born and the woman doesn't have the energy um, and the devotion anymore to keep pace that incidents of abuse start beginning. And so I would often say that oppressors use the least amount of control that they can, and oftentimes they have to change tactics and the level of intensity as the relationship progresses often as well. It can can go from emotional abuse to a violent attack. So there is no predictable pattern, which I think as helpers we want to know because sometimes we assume, you know, someone's just experiencing emotional abuse, it's okay. But it doesn't mean that they're not in serious danger. So that makes me wonder, then, how do we distinguish between something that might be considered a typical marriage argument or conflict to something that's more oppressive? That's a great point, right? Because if entitlement is what fuels abuse, we all are sinful and entitled people. And we all have preferences and want things the way we want them at Mm -hmm. times, right? At the end of the day, from homeschooling, I'm tired. I'm not really apt to jump up and delightfully always serve everyone once 1030 at night hits. <laughs> but what I think the difference is if, if I'm harsh or if 
I can see that I'm selfish, or if, if I say to my child, you know, you really need to take care of that. I can't help you right now. I can see the look on their face is downcast. Their response matters to me. If my husband approaches me and says, you know, you could have said it this way. Again, I'm remorseful. I'm apologetic. I'm not typically blind to my own sin when someone brings it to my attention. Oppressors, though, lack remorse. They, they're justified in their anger. There's always this punishing element to how they're interacting with people. Again, so you have to look at, yes, we all do behaviors at times that are dishonoring other people, but is there a pattern of punishment that is pervasive throughout the relationship? And that's quite different. And then we want to look at the extent of those punishments. And when we're seeing a pattern of punishments that damage someone's personhood or body, that's usually when we tip into the area of abuse. But there's not really a clear-cut line always, right? It's always clear if you get punched or strangled, that's abuse. One of the difficult things about answering the question is it abuse is you have to understand what is the behavior accomplishing for the perpetrating spouse. And that just takes time and nuance. Thank you for bringing that up because I, the next question I was going to ask really goes into the fact that with physical abuse, we equip the victim to analyze the situation mm -hmm. and decide if even, you know, what action is appropriate and safe for her to take. But what about those cases where it is emotional or even spiritual abuse, which you talk about in the book? How do we help this person who's really suffering? Emotional abuse attacks a victim's personhood. Spiritual abuse attacks their relationship with the Lord, the way that they feel the Lord sees them and values them. They're often made to feel unjustified, full of shame. Spiritual abuse actually does a lot of damage because it is difficult for an oppressed person to know if what is said about them is things that God would say about them. It's really difficult for them to tease those things apart. So when your person is attacked or your relationship with the Lord, your spiritual being um, is, is told that it's just wholly wrong and that God hates you, there's actually a greater amount of damage done to a person. In some ways, physical abuse tends to be episodic. Emotional and spiritual abuse are constant. Mm. Physical abuse, someone can look at their black eye and know what happened to them on some level was wrong. Emotional abuse and spiritual abuse are just disorienting for a victim and and oftentimes, the physical body of a person, even though they're not being harmed directly by physical violence, their bodies are ravages with chronic diseases, anxiety, panic attacks, and oftentimes their body is not doing well. And so our counsel really depends on the victim's clarity, how the victim is doing, how their children are holding up. And sometimes when there is spiritual and emotional abuse, a separation is called for um, to protect literally the, the person and the body that is not holding up well. And so, and yet there's other victims who um, tolerate the abuse better. So we really, it's case by case, but we want to really understand that the damage, just because it's, it's not physical in nature, it's often is much more devastating in its nature. So, Darby, what do we need to keep in mind when considering helping the victim to disclose abuse to their local church? That's a great question. She needs to be ready to bring her story into the light. 
right? She might face consequences. It's just a scary story to tell. She doesn't know how it's going to be received. So it's just a couple guiding things I think we just want to be aware of. And one is you want to make sure when a victim is telling her story to people in her church that you've helped her organize it. Often victims, their stories are fragmented. They tell circular stories. The details get them distracted. They have a hard time. They're traumatized people, if we think about it that way. They're traumatized people, and they have a hard time telling their story in a way that other people can understand the intensity and the seriousness of it. And oftentimes, their presentation puts people off. So one of the things I want to do as a counselor is I want to make sure the victim's organized her story, that she has examples. Maybe we have a little bit of timeline I want to be present with her, particularly if she's going to male leadership, someone standing in the gap with her when she gets a question, um, right? Authority feels threatening. So I want to have being questioned, right? A victim is not when they're questioned, they usually clam up. They've been conditioned to be in fear and to be afraid to speak up. And so I think just being with them, helping them extract their story in, in front of their leadership, using biblical categories for what's happening to them. Um, again, being as detailed as possible, maybe not even using the word abuse, but just describing this is what a typical week looks like in my home. Um, dishes are thrown and broken, you know, being very detailed. You do, you want to assess whether the church prioritizes the safety of the victim or the marriage. You know, is this church going to go slow, be careful? Are they going to want to have a confrontation with an oppressor that a victim isn't ready for? That might put her in danger. So sometimes while I'm getting a victim ready, I'm having a conversation with the church. You know, what have you read? How have you cared for victims before? Just trying to get a sense of where they need education, trying to help them respond well. And really, you're just extending an offer for the church. I think in the beginning is to offer care and support. Um, I think one of the best things to do is you're a victim just saying, you know, is there someone that can call her once a week and pray with her and hear more of what's going on in her story? And then when they start to understand um, the intensity and the pervasiveness, then we can start talking about implementing a, a plan. Um, oftentimes, churches want to implement a plan before a victim feels cared for and they back off or before they fully understand the extent of the oppression and they make mistakes. It's definitely a blessing to belong to the body of Christ for times such as what we're talking about, where we need the authority of the local church to help us and help victims who are vulnerable. It just makes me wonder, Darby, have you come across instances where the victim is actually not a member of a local church, and so you don't have that avenue to go down in terms of trying to seek help and intervention for what's happening in the home? Absolutely. And there's several reasons for that. One is that oppressors often do not join churches, right? They, they do not appreciate submitting to authority or they've left church, a church where there was church discipline happening in their marriage. Um, and so they're not going to join another church. So sometimes victims, their spouses do not permit them to become members. In those cases, if they're regular attenders, I say we just we're still going to extend the care and support and if appropriate, we still might confront the husband. Obviously, church discipline wouldn't be something that we could enact in a formal capacity, but there's a lot of one-anothering that can still happen. Sometimes I have women who are going to churches where the church just isn't 
helpful at this juncture or if they've watched another woman go through the process and be disciplined. Um, and so we choose not to approach the church right away or we delay it for a time. And there's just wonderful, again, supports, community supports, online support groups, domestic violence shelters that have support groups. And so really the priority is when a woman is the most vulnerable and she's needing help and understanding. If it's sad to me that it's not a church, but if it's not, we, we can entrust her to other agencies to build community. And sometimes it's like, if I don't approach the church as a formal body, I'll say to her, you know, is there a trusted friend that you'd like to have come to counseling one or two times? So there's someone in her church setting, a sister in the ward who can walk through things with her that now becomes educated on how to provide care. There's a lot of different ways to involve the community of Christ and just to in, involve other people that the Lord has gifted with care of the vulnerable. In the book, you offer four observations helpers or counselors can make in order to assess the damage that an abuse victim has sustained, which can give us a better understanding of the person we are trying to care for. Would you share those four points with us? Being trained at CCF, one of the things that Ed Welsh has instilled in me is that in order to offer wise counsel, we have to know a person and we have to know scripture. Um, and so the whole book, the way I've written it, I wanted it to be geared in a way to help you do just that. I want you to know a person well, um, and I want you to know what God says about what's happening to them. And so the four things that I'm thinking about, they're really a way, if you can answer the following four questions, they're really a way that says, yep, I know this person, I understand their story, I feel their burden, they feel known by me. And I've learned enough, and now I feel like I can begin to speak into the situation. And, and the four things that you want to be gaining knowledge of is you want to know, how does a victim think about herself? What is her understanding um, about who she is? How is her body and her heart? How are they holding up under the abuse? How are the wounds that are being perpetrated against her? How is she doing spiritually, physically, emotionally? Um, then we want to understand why she thinks her husband is mistreating her. Does she believe it's her fault? Is she growing and understanding the dynamics of abuse? Does she feel like God is punishing her? Everybody interprets their suffering differently, and we really want to understand why they think that abuse is happening to them. How are they interpreting that? And then lastly, it's really important to understand her view of her relationship with God and her suffering. Does God feel far off? Does he feel like someone who's protecting her? Oftentimes, our horizontal relationships with the people around us um, misinform us to who we believe God can be. And if you're in an oppressive marriage, you, you might overlay wrong characteristics or, or attributes of the Lord. Um, you miss them. Mm -hmm. And just many victims feel left by God, abandoned by God. They're, they're very similar to the psalmist who cry out, where are you, O Lord? I've cried day and night, and I have not heard from you. And so we really want to tend to their relationship with God, but we want to understand how they see him, how they experience him. And it's just so important to understand really their theological interpretation of what they're enduring. 
thank you for sharing those points with us and just giving us something to chew on. Uh, that helps us to be more compassionate as we approach victim care in the counseling room. Darby, we are all out of time for our discussion today, but I do want to invite you to do something that I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. There may be someone listening to this episode who is a counselor, ministry leader, or a people helper who has a heart for caring for abuse victims. What would you say to this person to encourage them to not grow weary in protecting the vulnerable from the evil of domestic abuse? Yeah, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge as helpers that we can't solve oppression, but our goal is always to bring light into the darkness. We, we can always show victims God's heart. We can help them connect their heart to his. We can do so much gospel work. We can't make their choices from the, for them. Um, we can't make the brutal things that are happening to them make them stop. But we can help them know God in their suffering. Um, we can help them know what is right and what is wrong in the Lord's eyes. Um, and we can help connect them to a God who will guide them in the hundreds of decisions that they have to make. And I know that God has called us to this work. It's hard work, but he is our helper. And I just know that I feel really privileged to be entrusted with the stories of victims and tend to the most vulnerable of the sheep. I've been greatly impacted, uh, I would say, my person and heart and my walk with the Lord by going into the places that he has asked us to go. And yes, we, he invites us into the darkness and to bring the light. But I would just say there is so much glory to be seen um, in being a light bearer in the dark places. Well, thanks again, Darby, for joining us for this really difficult conversation today. I want to give the audience an opportunity to connect with you. If there's someone listening who wants to learn more about your ministry and the resources that you have available, where can they find you online? Sure, in two places. I have a website, darbystrickland.com. And on that website, you'll see a resource tab um, where the things I've written appear. I also can be found at ccef.org, where there's blogs posted or national conference talks. Um, and my books can be found there as well. Very good. Well, we will be sure to include links to those places in the show notes. So if you're interested, you can scroll down, access the show notes, click the link there, and that will take you to a web page where you can access Darby's website and her profile at the ccef.org website as well. Darby, thanks again for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much for having me. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.